And good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 15? If you're new with us this morning, welcome. It's good to see you. We are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And as I just said, we are currently in chapter 15, just about 12 hours, less than 12 hours from the cross. And um, we've camped on verses 18 to 25, looking at the subject of persecution and suffering for Jesus' sake, um, for, for representing him in this fallen world as we go into it to preach the gospel which he commissioned us to do after his return to the Father. So let's read, first of all, verse 19. He told his disciples, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Verse 25, but this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Now, as we said last time, suffering for Jesus' sake is something very few Christians in America know much of anything about, primarily because it doesn't take much to follow. It doesn't cost us much to follow Jesus like it does, let's say, Christian Muslims, or I shouldn't say Christian Muslims, I should say Muslims who have become Christians living in Muslim countries or Christians living in communist countries. It costs these people something to be Christians. Uh, every day they live with the possibility they're going to be arrested, maybe even uh, imprisoned or, uh, or, or martyred. Uh, we don't have that in America, so we've gotten a little comfortable. We have gotten a little complacent. Now, that all may change. might change rapidly. We don't know. If it does change, it will mean that, uh, that American Christianity will finally look more like biblical Christianity, maybe for the first time in our nation's history. We'll have to wait and see. But uh, listen, biblical Christianity is all about following Jesus, which means as Jesus was the suffering servant, so must we be also. Now, last week we ended our study by saying that suffering the Christian life can, can take several different forms. But the bottom line is that suffering is, is part and parcel with the Christian life. It's part and parcel of the Christian life. It's just it's, it's a given, all right? In fact, it's so much a part of the Christian life that to try to separate it from Christianity, try to so separate suffering from Christianity would be like trying to separate the cross from Christianity, which would effect, in effect destroy the Christian faith altogether. It, it would be like saying you could separate Christ from the cross and still have a Christian faith. That's impossible because the Christian faith is built on atonement, atonement which means the payment for sins leading to the forgiveness of sins. Without atonement, without you know, uh, payment for sin, nobody could get saved. Our whole, the whole gospel we, we have embraced and we share is based on penal substitution. That another was beaten, another was, uh, was, um, uh, was punished for our sins. A substitute, right? But... Um, the Bible is very clear that without the shedding of blood, Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there could be no remission of sin, no forgiveness for the penalty of sin. No, no, without 
the blood, uh, the Old Testament, God allowed the blood of animals to temporarily atone for the sins of his people so they could have fellowship with him. Uh, the, the bloods of goats and bulls temporarily covered sin, couldn't take sin away. It temporarily covered sin, which allowed them to have, be able to have fellowship with God. Of course, in the New Covenant, Jesus Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, died uh, to take away our sins for, for all time, for all time. But uh, without the shedding of blood, there could be no remission, no, no remission of the penalty of sin, no forgiveness. And it wouldn't just take any shedding of blood. It couldn't be the guilty dying for the guilty. It had to be the innocent dying for the guilty. That's why Jesus, God had to become a man, and a virgin-born man, because sin is passed down from the father to the children. In Adam all die, not in Eve. And so the, our father had to be, Jesus' father had to be God the father. Because in so bypassing an earthly father, he was able to be born without sin. He grew up and lived a sinless life. He was the sinless, spotless lamb that could be sacrificed to take away our sin. Peter tells us that we weren't redeemed. This is the cost of, of, of paying for our sins and buying us out of slavery and so on. We weren't redeemed with things like gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without spot, and without blemish. He was perfect, okay? Guys, there can be no Christian faith without the cross, which means there can be no Christian faith without suffering. Jesus said this in Luke 20, 14, verse 27, where he said, look, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What was implied, of course, in saying that was the suffering that went along with the cross. There is no such thing as a crossless Christianity. Any more than there is a such, such a thing as a Christless Christianity. But if you embrace Christianity, there's a cross in it. That's why Jesus said to count the cost before you be, decide to be one of my disciples. There's a, a cross involved in following me. Self-denial, self-sacrifice, uh, dying to your own wants, desires, and goals, and becoming a servant of mine to live for my kingdom and so on. Now, please don't misunderstand me. When I talk about our suffering and how as Christians, you know, we are disciples of Christ, which means we need to take up the cross and suffer uh, along with Jesus and how he suffered. I am not saying, please don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying that suf the suffering we endure as Christians helps to atone for our sins. I am not saying that. There are some faith systems that teach that. You know that I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church which believes and teaches that Jesus' suffering on the cross plus our sufferings in life working together atones for our sins. In Roman Catholic theology, purgatory is the place Catholics go if they have not suffered hard enough or long enough or have not done sufficient amount of good works while on the earth, going to Mass, keeping the sacraments, lighting candles, praying the rosary. Uh, in Roman Catholic theology, if a Catholic has not suffered long enough, hard enough, and has not done enough good works on the earth, they go to purgatory after they die, uh, which purges them of their remaining sins so that they can enter into heaven. That's Catholic theology. I was a Catholic for many years. I believed that until I started reading the Bible. The truth will set you free, right? That, folks, is a heresy, not the Bible, of course. The, the doctrine that you know, we have to atone for our sins along with Jesus. That is 
heretical, it's blasphemous. Why? Because it's a denial of the completed work of Christ on Calvary's cross to atone for our sins. I mean, there's so many verses we could look at. I'll give just a few. Hebrews 10, verse 10, We have been sanctified, we have been saved through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. For all people, for all time. Jesus didn't have to keep dying on the cross. All right, He died once for all people, for all time. But there's nothing that needs to be added to that, or can be added to that. It's complete. Didn't he basically say that from the cross? John 19.30, before he bowed his head and dismissed his spirit, he said, uh, it is finished. The Greek word is tetelestai, which you could translate paid in full. What is paid in full? My account. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. Paul talked about how the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, uh, you know, he has taken out of the way through the blood of his cross. What does that mean? God's ledger has each of our names in it. And by our name, all all the by our names, all the sins we've ever gonna we're ever gonna commit in word, deed, and in thought, because he knows the heart. And he every time we violate something he has said, that goes in the ledger. And it becomes a debt we owe God. Didn't Jesus teach us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors? In the Jewish mind, sin was a debt that they owed God. A debt that they never realized they couldn't pay. The old uh the old covenant was never designed to take away their sins. It was only designed to temporarily cover their sins so they could have fellowship with God on a practical daily level. The problem was, and Rabbi Paul the Apostle, the great Jewish theologian, said the blood of goats and bulls could never take away sin. We, we knew that. Therefore, it could never really deal with our conscience. Our conscience was always guilty. We always knew that the blood of animals couldn't, they could cover sin, but they couldn't take it away. That was the burden we always bore. But Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice, gave his life for us and didn't just cover sins. He took them away. He died once for all. And you have to understand that there's nothing more that needs to be added. Aren't you glad he didn't say from the cross, it's almost finished? I did my part. I'm rooting for you guys to do your part. But there's a lot of faith systems, and I'm thinking primarily right now of the Roman Catholic Church that teaches that very thing. That Jesus' suffering plus our sufferings on the earth, together, working together, atone for our sins. That is not true. Jesus paid the price. He did the work, Hebrews 10, 14, for by one offering and nothing else, not anything I have to do to supplement it. For by one offering, he, Jesus Christ, has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. We're, we're growing as Christians, but we are perfect in God's eyes through the blood of Christ, right? So, guys, the Bible is clear. We are saved by the precious blood of Jesus Christ and only by his blood and um, who suffered on Calvary's cross apart and redeemed us apart from anything we can do or need to do in the way of, you know, works, keeping rituals, ceremonies, sacraments, including the suffering, any suffering we endure at the hands of others or even suffering that's self-inflicted. What do I mean by that? Well, I've read this to you before. I usually bring it out sometimes around, uh, you know, Resurrection Sunday. Um, 
But it, it, it speaks exactly to what we're talking about, how some people, and this is, again, uh, relates to Roman Catholics. I'm sure there's others who think they have to supplement what Jesus did to earn heaven. But this author says every year in the Philippines at Easter time, devout Catholics walk barefoot on rocks, sharp rocks, broken glass, while they flagellate themselves with whips as a way of atoning for their sins and worshiping God. These forms of quote-unquote worship are not according to the truth of God's word. He never commanded or prescribed them. They are nothing more than ignorant, blasphemous acts of man-made piety that God not only rejects, but will hold against those who practice them on the day of judgment, no matter how sincere or pious they might have been those who offered them. And then he quotes from Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6, but he, Jesus Christ, was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. He was beaten. He was bloodied, that I might have peace with God. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid upon Jesus the iniquity of us all. He did it all. He paid the price. And so once again, our suffering doesn't help to atone for our sins. No way. But it does help to conform us into the image of Christ who was a suffering servant. Who was a suffering servant. What does that do? Well, it helps us to be a light to those in darkness and hopefully the way, by the way we handle uh, adversities and sufferings. It will draw these people to Christ. Listen, I was telling first service, anybody can be happy and rejoicing when things are going well. It doesn't take a spirit-filled Christian to praise God if everything's going well, right? Life is great. You just got a promotion. Everyone's healthy, so on and so forth. Anyone can, that doesn't impact anybody. They say, well, yeah, I'd be happy too if I was in your place. But it's when people that we work with or neighbors or a family, friends, who know we're Christians and know that, we've just gotten word we have cancer or our spouse has cancer or one of our children is gravely ill or uh, they, we, we've just been laid off after 30 years. The company is cutting back and whatever. And here we are. We haven't crumbled in a fetal position on the ground or run for the liquor cabinet. We're just praising God. God's on the throne. He's going to take care of me and my family. He's promised to do that. He's never let me down in all the years I've known him. People are taken back by that. That's a witness. That impacts people when you can still sing God's praises in the midst of adversity. I was uh, telling First Service that um, during the first century, after Nero tried to burn Rome down uh, and blame the Christians, it was a big uh, a wave of, of um, anti-Christian sentiment. And uh, so Christians were being rounded up and they were being tortured and martyred. And, of course, much of that revolved around the, the Colosseums and things where they were fed to lions, and, uh, but, but different ways that they were being martyred. And uh, history tells us that many, many of these Christians, as they were facing death, were singing praise songs to God. They were praying out loud, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Save them, Lord. Now, you have to understand, first century Roman culture was very decadent. Very decadent. And... Uh, uh, if pe people were pretty much living for pleasure. That was the whole deal, right? 
And if you had enough money, you could you could surround yourself and enjoy enough pleasure that, you know, you just seem to have a never-ending supply of, of pleasure and material th and so on. After a while, you can only indulge your flesh so much and it no longer satisfies. You get jaded. And so these people, had, many of them had gotten very jaded. They didn't have, have anything left they could live for. And here's a group of people that were very poor many times, and yet they had something that they were willing to die for. And as they were suffering before they were uh, martyred and singing praises to God, it brought thousands and thousands and thousands of people to Christ during the first three centuries of the church's existence. All because of the way Christians faced death, suffered, but praised God, and prayed for their enemies. As I said, many Christians in America are ignorant to what the Bible really has to say on the subject of suffering for Christ. Why is that? Well, there's two basic reasons. First of all, many American Christians don't think that suffering is relevant to them, to their lives. That that's belongs to suffering really is, is all about Christians living in other countries around the world, but not here in America. We're a Christian country. Okay? And and as such we have freedom of religion. And persecution, therefore, is really not something that they feel is uh, relevant to their lives. So, you know, if it's not I've heard people say, um, you know, I don't really get into the Bible that much as a Christian. I mean, I don't really feel the need to get real deep. In, I'm not going to be a pastor or a missionary, so what's the point? Uh, the point is that you get to know God, okay? But there are, there's that mindset that, you know, if, I, if it doesn't pertain to me, I, I'm just not going to take it seriously. So that's the first reason. second reason is that there are many, many Christians in America that when they read passages in the Bible that talk about uh, Christian suffering, they get very uncomfortable, they get scared, and they just skip over those verses because I, they don't want to deal with it. It, makes them, it frightens them. And so they'd rather focus on verses that are more you know, positive, quote-unquote, and uplifting. Well, folks, there are whole churches that have built their ministries around keeping things positive and uplifting. They never talk about suffering. They never really preach the cross. The guy might wear a cross. He never really preaches the cross. And that's the problem. You have a lot of Christians in America that have grown up on a diet of, you know, God's good, God's loving, uh, and he wants you to have the best in life and ha prosper your business and own the nicest house in town and the best car, you know, that kind of thing. You have a lot of Christians that have grown up with that mindset. And um, so that when adversity comes, they are not prepared to deal with it. Uh, there's a lot of, I don't know if they're all Christians, there's a lot of professing Christians in our country who are absolutely unprepared for suffering if it does come. I think most of us. We just haven't grown up with it. I don't think we're ready for it. It might be coming. It's good right now to begin to you know, get it in our heads. Um, what would we do? What would we do if they started to persecute Christians in our country. I'm talking about our leadership and so on. It seems like their attitude towards Christians is changing. But a lot of Christians are really ignorant about what the Bible really has to say about suffering. Let me give you a few examples. I'm not going to 
There's so many more we could give. I'll give you a few. You write down the uh, references, okay? First one is 1 Peter 5.10, where Peter said, May the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. So Peter doesn't say if you suffer. He says when you suffer. It's only going to be for a while. And God is using it to perfect your walk, uh, strengthen, establish, and settle you. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul said, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's a given. Philippians 3.10, Paul said that I may know him. Paul knew Christ for 30 years at this point. He said, I want to know him in a deeper way. I want to know the power of his resurrection. That's right. I also want to know the fellowship of his suffer, suffering, that I might be conformed into his image. Uh, Jesus is who he is. You can't slice and dice Jesus. Uh, like a lot of people want to slice and dice God. They go to the Bible. They only pull out the verses that they like, you know, about his love and his mercy and grace. That's all good stuff, right? Uh, they kind of re reject or kind of you know, separate him from his righteousness, holiness, justice, and so on. You know, either you take God for who he is or you don't take him at all is the idea. And so this is what uh, Paul is saying, right? If I'm going to, I want to know Christ, that doesn't just mean the stuff I want to know. It also means the stuff I need to know, like the suffering of Christ. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 5. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in, uh, abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. But because we're, we suffer, we're able to console or to comfort those who are suffering with the same comfort we receive from God when we went through suffering. That's the definition of ministry. In fact, I should have backed it up a, a, a couple of verses and read to you 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4, because that's what he says. It's, just, it's all about um, enduring things that we can then be better equipped to help others who are suffering, because we've received comfort from God. We can better comfort them, console them. First Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of, this, of Christ's sufferings, and when his glory is revealed, when he comes for his church, you may, may also be glad with exceeding joy. Trials are, uh, are what God uses in, in some ways to strengthen or temper our faith. That's why Peter calls it fiery trials. Because when you subject steel to fire, it tempers it, it hardens it. And uh, that's the idea, that God will subject our faith to fiery trials. The idea is not to destroy us, but to strengthen us uh, for what's coming. So he can ultimately use us in greater ways for his glory. Uh, very important that when he appears for his church and we're raptured, and we see him face to face, we can rejoice that we weren't shallow Christians, that we, we didn't want to just have the good stuff, and, and gravitate to churches that would only tell us what we wanted to hear. But we would take Jesus for who he is in his entirety. Philippians 1.29. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And then, of course, our verse this morning, John 15, verses 18 to, and 20. If the world hates you, Jesus said, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, the world, they will persecute you also. Guys, here's the problem with a lot of American Christians, okay? 
they get saved, and for a while they're on the mountaintop. Everybody in this room who's a Christian understands what I'm talking about. I remember, and this is going back a ways, when I first got saved. Man, it was incredible. I was so filled with joy. I was on a spiritual mountaintop. All I wanted to do was read the Bible and talk about the Lord with people and go to church. It was incredible, right? Sing songs, memorize verses. It was, it, I was on such a spiritual high. The problem is there's a lot of times Christians want to live on the mountaintop, okay? Like Peter, remember in Matthew 17 when Jesus brought Peter, James, and John, I believe, onto the top of the mountain? And uh, there appeared uh, with uh, the Lord uh, Moses and Elijah, right? Well, Peter was so overwhelmed by this mountaintop experience that he just blurts out, Lord, can, we, can, we, can I build a few booths? We would say erect a few tents and just live up here. You know, I mean, I get where he's coming from. I mean, who wouldn't want to live on the mountaintop, right? Perpetually. Some Christians think that God should just airlift them from mountaintop to mountaintop. But you don't grow on the mountaintop. The mountaintop is a wonderful experience that after you've been suffering trials, God puts you on the mountaintop for a while. You're just overwhelmed with his love and wow. Gives you a little rest and rejoices in, your, in you and him. We don't grow on the mountaintop. We grow in the valley. And so after the Lord allows us to enjoy the mountaintop experience, kind of a honeymoon in our relationship with him, at one point we have to follow him down Follow Jesus down into the valley of suffering. And since a lot of Christians have never been told <laughs> that suffering is just a normal part of the Christian life, they think the mountaintop's a normal part, right? They, in their mind, because this is what their church is basically teaching them, they think the mountaintop is normal Christianity. I'm just going to live up here. Well, no, the Lord's not going to let us live on the mountaintop. He will lead us down into the valley because that's where we grow. That's where we fight battles. When Jesus came down from the mountaintop, remember with Peter, James, and John, what was waiting for them down in the valley? Remember the demon-possessed boy? The father brought his demon-possessed son to the disciples who were waiting at the bottom of the mountain. And they couldn't do anything to cast the demon out of this kid. It was a real ferocious demon, so Jesus did it. The, the, the lesson, though, is you can enjoy the mountaintop for however long the Lord lets you stay up there, but you're going to come down in the valley, and there's demons waiting for you to attack you. There's warfare. You have to understand that. But a lot of Christians are not prepared. They have never been really taught this. And so they, uh, when, the, when trials and adversity comes, they think God has let them down. He's broken some promise to them that they would never know hardship and pain and suffering. In fact, many Christians are troubled by the very idea that God would even allow his children to suffer in this life. They reason, how could a loving father even allow such a thing? Satan uses it to challenge their whole concept of God. And so I've seen over the years people walk away from the Lord. Because after they've been saved a while, God began to allow adversity to come. Why? To strengthen them and ultimately to use them. Because... The only way we are going to be all that God wants us to be is to go through the fiery trials which strengthen our faith and uh, teach us how to persevere. But I've seen many walk away after rejoicing in the Lord for a while. 
then they get bad news that they've got cancer or a spouse dies or a child gets sick and uh, God let me down. God wasn't faithful to me and so they walk away. Again, no one ever told them adversity and suffering were a normal part of the Christian life. So last week we said, look, we want to talk about why God allows suffering, sufferings in the lives of his children this week. And then we'll move on. This is such an important topic, though, and one that is, again, part and parcel to the Christian life. We, we better understand it. There's no way, as I said to close last week's message, there's no way we can really serve Jesus in this fallen world in victory and fruitfulness if we don't understand the role suffering plays in our lives. Otherwise, it's just going to be meaningless suffering. And, and there you... Sometimes people get the concept, well, God just enjoys watching me suffer. No, there's a purpose in it. If you don't know the purpose that God's up to, you're going to get a warped concept of God himself. All right, so the first reason why God allows suffering in the lives of his children is because suffering proves the reality of our faith. Some of these are so obvious, I'm just going to read a couple passages. It doesn't even need to be commented on, Okay. But first of all, why does God allow suffering in the lives of his kids? Because suffering proves the reality of our faith. First Peter 1, starting with verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, see, the genuineness of your faith. What does that mean? Phonies who think they're saved and are not, who don't really have saving faith, when fiery trials come, it just poof, burns up their faith. It's gone, whatever little faith they had. A person who really knows Jesus and has true saving faith, they're going to hang in there. No, it's not easy. But like Peter said, when Jesus turned to his disciples, after he laid down the cost of discipleship, many walked away, followed him no more. He turned to the twelve and said, will you also go away? And what did Peter say? Where else can we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. No, the Christian life is not easy. Sometimes it's very hard going forward, but I know one thing. I'm not going backward. I am not going back to the world. By the grace of God, there's nothing there I want anymore. I've become a new creation. God's given me a new heart. I mean, there's no way I want to go back to the old life. I'm dead to that life. I'm a new creation in Christ. So God allows fiery trials that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory the revelation of Jesus Christ. God uses trials to purify our faith. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. And you have forgotten, talking to God's kids, you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons or daughters. God speaking, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he scourges, or he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. The bottom line is, God doesn't discipline people that are not his kids. Now, he may punish them if they continue in that path, but he only disciplines his children. That's what he does, okay? Um, you know, I only discipline my kids. I think we have laws that forbid people from just disciplining other people's kids, right? 
I disciplined my kids. I don't even discipline my grandkids. Okay, that's their parents' job. My job is to spoil them rotten and give them back to mom and dad. They don't always appreciate that, but you know, I've earned that right raising my teenagers, okay? Amen. But, <laughs> and don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. Ever since I've been a Christian, I can't get away with anything. Not, not that I want to. But there's a few times you start maybe, you know, get just drifting a little bit, a little compromise. I don't think the Lord will be upset with this. You know, I, what, fill in the blank. I'm not going to go there. I'm just fill in the blank, right? You see, he starts to just drift a little bit, right, justifying it, and boom, God brings down some hammer on you or closes, slams the door. Or, uh, you know, I'll give you one example. I, I wasn't saved that long, and I had my car, and I worked midnights. Got into my car one night to go to work, and I, and I, I remembered my license plates expired the day before. Lord, I, I, as soon as I get off of work, I'm going to go get the, renew my license. I'm driving without with the, with the license plates that were expired, right? That's illegal. I don't want to break the law. So I promised the Lord I would do it. As soon as I got off work the next morning, I would, you know. Well, I got off work. I was tired. I don't, know if I, I don't think I, I thought, well, you know, I, I can do it later today. So later that day, I'm driving somewhere, and I got pulled over. I got a ticket. And I actually thank the Lord for the ticket. Thank you, Lord. You're proving to me that I'm, I'm your son. You don't want me to get away with it. You want, me, you want to keep me in the center of your will that you can keep blessing my life. You don't want us to be rebellious and, and, and break laws and things. But suffering proves the reality of our faith. A man by the name of Jonathan Cho, who was at one time president of Christ College in Taipei and director for the Chinese Church Research Center in Hong Kong, uh, studied suffering in the context of the suffering church in China. Here's what he said. One can almost say that suffering for Christ in our country is a mark of discipleship. So in China and other countries, of course, um, when they people get saved, they just know they're going to suffer. In fact, you can't even be a pastor in China unless you can prove you have suffered for the faith, that you were outspoken enough with the gospel, that you served the Lord uh, openly to the point you incurred uh, persecution. They're looking for that kind of a man to be a, a pastor. But it's just... They just, this is it. You're going to become a Christian here. You're going to suffer. Know that going in. Count the cost. Martin Lloyd-Jones, tremendous man of God with the Lord now. Great commentator. He said, and I quote, If you are suffering as a Christian, and because you are a Christian, it is one of the surest proofs you can ever have of the fact that you are a child of God, end quote. All right, number two. First of all, suffering proves the reality of our faith. Number two, suffering promotes our dependence upon God. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul said, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of, the, of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. <clears throat> the persecution was so great, Paul said, we didn't think we were going to make it. We thought we were going home. Okay? Verse 9, Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, 
that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So Paul was saying what the suffering, the persecution did was it, um, it caused us to be totally dependent on God. Look, there are times, and we're very independent in America. I think it's kind of what is bred into our DNA when we were founded as a nation. Our founding fathers, many of them were godly men, um, and they loved the Lord. But they did, uh, they did infuse within us this idea that, you know, we, we could, back in the first, first days of our nation, could do anything with God's grace and help. Well, over the years, as our country has moved farther and farther away from God, uh, God's strength, God's help has gone by the wayside, and we can do anything. Because we're Americans. And that's kind of the idea that a lot of people have. That makes for a very independent, self-reliant uh, person. These are weaknesses. These are weaknesses. I mean, the more reliant you are on your own strength, the less you're relying on God's strength, the weaker you are overall. Trials has a way God allows things to come into our lives, suffering, adversity, to force us to um, have dependence on him. It goes beyond us. There's nothing else we can do. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've used up all my resources, gone to the best doctors, sought the best uh, advice, and nobody else can help my child with this disease. What does that do? Well, either causes you to curse God or hopefully to fall at his feet and say, God, I can't, I can't do this. I need your grace. I need your, we need your strength and so on. Didn't Paul say this in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 to 10? As Paul was suffering with some thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. God allowed it. And so after he prayed three times that this thing would be taken from him, God responded by saying, My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul responded by saying, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distress, sufferings for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I'm not relying on my own strength, in whatever the situation is, but relying on his strength and power, then I'm really strong. Because my strength only goes so far. His is infinite, uh, limitless, right? Number three, suffering purifies our relationship with God. And for that, I'm looking at Psalm 119, verses 67 and verse 71, where David, and we all know the sin of David, how he sinned with Bathsheba, who um, was the wife of one of his mighty men, Uriah. And uh, while Uriah and David's guys were on the battlefield fighting the battles of the Lord in the trenches, uh, David, about 55 years old, was tired of going to war, tired of living in the trenches, had just built for himself a beautiful new cedar palace, and wanted to take, wanted to retire. Well, as you all know, I mean, idleness is the devil's workshop. And so one night, while he's walking on top of his uh, roof of his palace, which was a patio, he looks down, sees a woman bathing, and lusted after her, and sent servants, and they took her. He slept, slept with her. You remember the story. Uh, the most sordid uh, thing in David's life. Now, he eventually repented and God forgave him, although his life was never really the same. But he writes after this whole thing. 
it was good for me to have been afflicted because now I understand the importance of staying close to God, um, obeying God. I've seen some people challenge this illustration. Uh, I have been told it's true how that if a shepherd has a little lamb that keeps wandering away, and no matter how many times the shepherd you know, brings it back to the flock, it keeps wandering away. The shepherd knows that eventually it's going to wander away, he's, going to, he's not going to know about it, and the wolf's going to get the little lamb and kill it. So in an act of mercy that many would look at and go, that doesn't sound like mercy to me, but the shepherd knows it is. He takes his rod and he breaks one of the, one of the little lamb's legs, bandages it up, and then picks it up and he carries it while the leg is mending. He carries it in one arm close to his heart. And from what I am told, when that leg finally heals and he puts that little lamb down, it's gotten so used to being close to his shepherd, it never wanders away ever again, which means it's in a place of safety. Sometimes God afflicts us not to ultimately hurt us, but to spare us some hurt down the road that he knows will come if we don't stay close to him. Guys, suffering cleanses us from sin, it teaches us obedience, and it brings forth from our lives what Paul called the fragrance of Christ. I heard one author share a story. I'll read it to you. The author said, and I quote, There was a French painter by the name of Pierre Renoir. He was afflicted with arthritis, and his hands eventually became so twisted and deformed that even something as simple as holding a brush was excruciatingly painful. In time, he was confined to a wheelchair, but he would not give up painting. One day, his friend Henry Matisse visited him and watched as he painfully grasped the brush with only his fingertips. Every movement caused him pain, yet he doggedly kept at his painting. Matisse asked his friend, what are you doing? Why are you, are you continuing to paint when there's so much pain? Why don't you just give it up? Renoir said, the pain, the pain passes, but the beauty remains. Those are good words for the Christian life and what God is up to and why we should endure suffering. The pain passes, but the beauty endures. And that's what happens to a Christian who gets through who goes through suffering. Again, the pain passes, but the beauty of a deeper, pure, and more loving relationship with God remains. Number four, suffering provokes courage. Listen, in other believers, our suffering provokes courage in other believers. Listen to what Paul said, Philippians 1, 4, verse 14. Paul wrote this from the dungeon in Rome. He wrote Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and uh, Philemon. They're called the prison epistles. I mean, Paul was such a type A guy that, you know, God had to allow him to be thrown into prison to make him stop long enough to write the New Testament. And we're thankful that he spent a little downtime because I like those books. They helped me a lot. All right? But uh, Paul wrote from the dungeon there in uh, Rome to the Philippians. He said, And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So by me being in prison and how I'm handling it, and God, 
other Christians are watch me disciples. He had discipleship classes. They were letting him have people uh, visit him, and he would share the gospel and teach young Christians how to be better disciples. And uh, you know, and again, wrote much in the New Testament. Um, but Paul says a lot of other Christians are looking at my suffering, and they're becoming more bold in their walk to be, you know, more open in their witness for Christ, and so on. When I was looking over my notes for the last time I taught a series on suffering, I, I, I found some, uh, some stories and illustrations that uh, go back a little bit, but of course the lessons they teach are as relevant today as they were back then. Let me read you a couple of them. One author said, and I quote, In our time, it's hard to overstate the impact that the martyrdom of Jim Elliot, that would be Elizabeth Elliot's husband, uh, martyrdom of Jim Elliot, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Pete Fleming, and Roger Uderian has had on countless students. The word that appeared over and over again in the testimonies of those who heard the story of how the Aka, the Aka Indians, they went there to minister to the Akas to save them, and the Akas were savages, and they didn't really understand. One of the guys hugged one of the, they were, they were cannibals. And one of the team, not understanding the culture that well, hugged one of the Ancas, and they interpreted that as an as an an act where they were gonna, they were saying we're gonna we're gonna kill and, and cannibalize you, and so that was one of the things that they you know, we, we better get these guys first, right? Uh, is the idea, um, but the word that appeared over and over again in the testimonies of those who heard the story of the Aka Indians. And the slaying of, the, of, these, of those men, the word that kept coming up was the word dedication. But part of the story that is seldom told when the story of the, the Akas is told in the martyrdom of these men was the courage of their wives. Barbara Udarian wrote in her diary the night, that night of January 1956, Tonight the captain told us of finding four bodies in the river. One was wearing a t-shirt and blue jeans. Raj was the only one that wore them. God gave me this verse two days earlier. And she writes down Psalm 48, verse 14. For this is God, our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to death. The author says, as I came, as I came face to face, she said, I'm sorry, as I came face to face with the news of Raj's death, my heart was filled with praise. This is a godly woman. This is a spirit-filled, godly woman. When I heard of my husband's de death, my heart was filled with praise. He, my husband, was worthy of his home going. Help me, Lord, to be both mommy and daddy. Wow. Not, curse you, God. How could you do this to us? Wow. How different it is today, isn't it? Help me to be both, both mommy and daddy to my children. And out of that testimony, hundreds and hundreds of recruits went onto the mission field. End quote. Well, Elizabeth Elliot, Elizabeth Elliot actually went back to the very Aka Indians that had murdered her husband, and she started to minister to them. By this time, they understood that the Christians were not trying to hurt them, trying to help them. She wound up winning the whole tribe to Christ by her sacrifice. More recently, the execution of Wycliffe missionary Chet Bitterman by the Colombian guerrilla group M19 unleashed an incredible zeal for the cause of Christ, one writer says. He goes on, Chet Bitterman 
had been in captivity seven days while his wife Brenda and their little daughters Anna and Esther waited in Bogota. The demand of the M-19 was that Wycliffe get out of Colombia. They shot uh, Chet just before dawn, a single bullet to his chest. The police found his body in the bus where he had died, in a parking lot in the south of town. He was clean and shaven. His face relaxed. A gorilla banner was wrapped around his body. The author goes on. In the year that followed Chet Bitterman's death, applications for overseas service with Wycliffe Bible translators doubled and has continued to double every year since. Now, this is going back a ways. But for years after, every year, he, because of what happened to this man, it, it spurred something in people that they wanted to be bold for Christ. He died for Jesus. I, I barely live for the Lord. I want to be somebody who goes out and lays it all on the line for Christ. Every year for years after, the applications to be Bible, Wycliffe Bible translators double. It could be all traced back, the author said, to the moment Chet Bitterman suffered and died for Christ. Didn't Jesus say this in John 12, verses 24 and 5? He said, I tell you the truth. Unless a grain of wheat is planted into the soil and dies, it remains alone. But if it, if it dies, it produces much grain, much produce. A plentiful harvest, Jesus said. It produces a plentiful harvest of new lives for the kingdom. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this life, uh, in this world, um, will keep it for eternity. In other words, you give up your life now to live for Jesus, you will endure an eternity of blessing. You can live for yourself. God doesn't force anyone to live for him and so on. All right, quickly, number five. Suffering provides opportunities for witness. Remember the story of the first century Christians, how they suffered and were a tremendous witness for Christ. Many got saved. Suffering provides opportunities for witness. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 10. That our suffering, Paul said, always caring about in the body, excuse me, um, always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. So as we suffer, we are relating to Christ who suffered, right? And um, always carrying about in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus through our suffering, that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body. Through the way we handle sufferings, yes, relating to Christ's death, but it also causes people to be uh, saved through the life of Christ that lives within us too. We're born again. Philippians 1, verses 12 and 13. Paul said, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. He's writing from prison now. Don't feel sorry for me. I'm reaching people for Christ. I could never have reached if I wasn't a prisoner in, in, uh, in the Caesar's palace. I mean, look at the whole staff. At one point he says, oh, the whole staff greets you. He's writing to another church. Yeah, all the, the cooks and the, and, and, the, and the maids and every, and the, and the, and the, the uh, uh, palace police. Quite a ministry in that place. They all say hi, right? They're all saved now. Uh, verse 13, so, you know, what, what has happened to me has happened for the furtherance of the gospel so that it becomes evident to the whole palace card and to all the rest of my chains are in Christ. I'm being a witness for Jesus. Guys, one of the most powerful stories I have ever heard about the purpose and power of suffering in being a witness 
for Jesus. It's about a man named Joseph who came to Christ out of the Muslim religion. Let me read it to you. It's a true story, of course. <clears throat> one day Joseph, who was walking along one of the hot, those hot, dirty African roads, met someone who shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. Then and there he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior, and the power of the Holy Spirit began transforming his life. He was filled with such excitement and joy that the first thing he wanted to do was go back to his village and share Jesus with all the people he had basically grown up with, all of his family and friends, all the members of his local tribe. Joseph began going from door to door telling everyone he met about the cross of Jesus and the salvation that, that it offered, expecting their faces to light up just as his had. To his amazement, the villagers not only didn't care, they became violent. The men of the village seized him and held him to the ground while the women beat him with strands of barbed wire. He was dragged from the village and left to die alone in the bush. Joseph somehow managed to crawl to a water hole and there, after three days of passing in and out of consciousness, found the strength to get up. He couldn't understand the hostile reception he had received from the people he had known all of his life. Finally, he decided he must have left something out or not told the story correctly. You ever been there? Why, why didn't this person get that? It must have been me. I left something out. I didn't do it right. So after rehearsing the message, he decided to go back and share his faith again. He limped into the circle of huts and began to proclaim Jesus. He died for you so that you might find forgiveness and come to know the living God. And again, he was grabbed by the men of the village and held while the women beat him, reopening the wounds that had just begun to heal. Once more, they dragged him unconscious from the village and left him to die. To have survived the first beating was truly remarkable. To live through the second was a miracle. Again, days later, Joseph awoke in the wilderness, bruised, scared, determined in his heart to go back. He returned to the small village, and this time they attacked him before he even had a chance to open his mouth. And as they flogged him for the third and probably the last time, he again spoke to them of Jesus Christ the Lord. And before he passed out, the last thing he saw was the woman who had been beating him began to weep. The conviction of the Holy Spirit. This time he awoke in his own bed. The ones who had so severely beaten him were now trying desperately to save his life and to nurse him back to health. Through Joseph's witness, the entire village came to know Jesus Christ. Now, I'll be honest with you. When I read stories like that, I am racked with guilt at my own shallow commitment to Christ compared to something like this. The only thing that I take comfort in is knowing that when we face situations like this, God gives grace. God gives grace at that moment. You know, you can't figure out how um, anyone could go through that because you are not going through it, so God hasn't given you the grace or me the grace, right? But I've asked myself, how much pain and suffering am I willing to bear? Are any of us willing to bear that others might come to know our Savior, Jesus Christ? It's a question we need to ask ourselves. And then finally, guys, suffering prepares us to reign with Jesus. Suffering prepares us to reign with Jesus. Romans 8, verse 17. Paul talks about how we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, 
that we may also be glorified together. Suffering for Christ um, is a sign, is a, is a, tells us that uh, we belong to him and it prepares us to reign with him. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches. For, for uh, excuse me, so that we are, Paul says, we, we're boasting about you guys. Your witness has gone into all the world. We boast of, of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure for Christ, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. In other words, that God is judging you worthy. You're, you're saved. You're genuine. That you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. It's all preparing us to reign with Christ. 2 Timothy 2.12, Paul said, if we, if we endure suffering... We shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. Guys, suffering prepares us for heaven, and so we must prepare for suffering. Paul taught his converts uh, uh, that he led to Christ. He uh, taught them this right from the beginning. Uh, Acts 14, verses 21 and 2. And when they had preached the gospel, Paul and his team, had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples. They returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Those people who are living a country club Christian life, you need to examine yourself. Do you really know Jesus? And if you know him, what kind of life are you living that there's no persecution coming your way. Let me close with a final story. All right. Many of you have heard of the name Richard Warmbrand. Okay. One author says, and I'm quoting, one Christian author relates how Richard Warmbrand endured 14 years of, of imprisonment and torture for Christ in his homeland of Romania between 1948 and 1964. He had led a secret underground ministry when the communists seized Romania and tried to control the church for their own purposes. Warmbrand, like the Apostle Peter, stresses the, the tremendous need to get spiritually ready to suffer. Now was the time, not when it happens. Listen to what he said. What shall we do about these tortures? Will we be able to bear them? If I do not bear them, I put in prison another 50 or 60 men whom I know because that is what the communists wish from me to betray those around me. So if I don't endure the suffering, the, the torture, and I give up the names of many other Christians, they're going to arrest them, torture them to find out more Christians. And this is what I, I faced, he said. And we all need to ask, are we ready to face something like that? And, and here comes the great need for the role of preparation beforehand. He wrote, It will be too difficult to prepare yourself for when the communists have put you in prison. I remember my last confirmation class before I left Romania. I took a group of 10 to 15 boys and girls. These are not, you know, these are probably 12, 13-year-old kids. I took a group of 10 to 15-year-old boys and girls on a Sunday morning, not to church, but to the zoo. The zoo? And I brought them before the cage of lions. I told them, Your forefathers were thrown before such wild beasts for their faith. 
Know that you will also have to suffer. You will not be thrown before lions, but you will have to do with men who would be much worse than lions. Decide here and now if you wish to pledge allegiance to Christ. <laughs> These kids all had tears running down their cheeks, and they all said, yes, we will commit our lives to Christ. Good heavens, if we took our kids to the zoo, stood before lions and, and told them this, the police, they would call the police on us. And we wouldn't do that. But maybe you should. Maybe you should. That's radical. That's what I'm talking about. We don't live radical Christianity in America. I mean, we might soon. But the idea is that we're, 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 we're too comfortable. We're, we're too sophisticated in our Christian walk. We need to get radical. We, we need to tell the next generation about what it means to really follow Christ. May God give us all the grace to endure. Whatever's coming, and I don't know what's coming. I pray revival's coming. I don't know. Whatever is coming, testing, tribulation, suffering, whatever comes our way for Jesus' sake, may God give us grace to endure it, even to embrace it, and praise him even in the midst of it. That by his grace and strength we might endure and glorify God and win our enemies to Jesus because they're not our enemies. They are our enemies. We're not, the, we're not, uh, we, they're not our enemies. We are their enemies. They've been taken captive by the devil to do his will. I don't, I'm not going to look at these people. Whoever persecutes us is being my enemies. But may God use whatever we go through as a means to bring others to Christ. And I'll end with the words of Peter who said, talking about Jesus when he suffered, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges all things righteously. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. When somebody persecutes and, and, and uh, treats us badly, it's not up to us to get even. It's up to us to pray for them. May God give us the love and grace to do that. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, Lord, you don't sugarcoat things. You, you, you lay it out. You, you don't soft pedal it, walk around it. You, you bring it to us head on. That those who desire to live godly lives in, in you will suffer persecution. This is what it means to be a Christian. And so, Lord, give us grace in whatever is coming our way in the way of suffering and persecution, that we prepare mentally right now, that we get in your presence, and we ask for grace now to endure whatever's on its way. We don't know what is on its way, but we pray for revival. But Lord, if a time of suffering is going to be unleashed against your people in America, give us grace to handle it with your strength, your grace, and uh, to pray for those who are um, mistreating us. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.